and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I've got a very special session for you because it's a little bit about research and a little bit about something else that our students get involved in. Of course, you know, I'd like to put a little little thing out there to get you get you curious. Today I would like to introduce you to Paolo D'Antonio who is doing a PhD in the collaborative program in cancer research from the Biomedical Molecular Sciences Home Program under the supervision of Dr. Lynn Marie Postovit as well as Nathan Holwell who is doing a PhD in the collaborative program in biomedical engineering with his home program being chemical engineering under the supervision of Dr. Brian Amston. Welcome to Grad Chat, Paolo and Nathan. Thank you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite funny having two people in the studio because I keep forgetting, you know, can I have another microphone? Because we've only got one each. So uh, anyway, we're going to make sure that it works. Now, before we get into your own research and your own programs, you know, the audience is probably wondering why I have two students in very different fields of study on the show together. So, I don't know, who would like to ask first, how did you, you know, how did your um, paths cross in the first place? Because, you know, biomedical engineering and cancer research is very different. Absolutely. Yes, Nathan and I met at STBN or Science to Business Network. I came in in 2020 as an international student and I knew S2BN from past experiences and I applied to join S2BN here at Queens. And Nathan was already in the team as a marketing coordinator, I believe, at the time. <laughs> and so I was hired by them and that's how Nathan and I got to know each other. Okay, so then Nathan, maybe what is Science to Business Network? Yeah, so it's uh, multi-provincial, so it's across all of Canada, and it's a network of uh, chapters that in each city that try to uh, promote careers outside of academia to science-based students. So we appeal to STEM students, and we try to foster those connections for people once they graduate to have jobs outside of academia. And we've had multiple career fairs and workshops, such as how to become involved in medical affairs, science communication, and we have lots more of exciting events coming up as well. So, Paul, why was it important for you that Queen's have a, a club-like or a chapter of the Science to Business Network here? I believe the Kingston chapter is the second chapter of the S2BN, and I believe it's extremely helpful to have a resource for students to know what they can do after graduation, because as we know, a lot of people graduate, but there aren't many positions as a faculty member. And also, not a lot of people want to continue in academia after they graduate. So, and for some people, academia is all they know. That's right. all they've been doing since they graduate from undergrad. And a lot of people don't know what's out there. Um, what are the options for um, people with their skills? And so that's what we try to do is expose graduate students and postdocs to other fields, other career paths that they can choose from 
after graduating. Was there any other sort of reason that you personally wanted to? I mean, you said you're an international student, and I know as an international student, sometimes it's hard to get to meet other people. Was that also an impetus, knowing that, knowing what the chapter was about, but this was another way of learning about what they can do, but also meeting others? Yeah, of course. I think for me also, I joined SCBN because I wanted to know more about the Canadian job market right. and what was asked from candidates, what skills employers are looking for and also to grow my own network and yeah I think that's been very helpful and I love to like just help other students to get the same opportunities as me and yeah so I think that's what drove me to join S2BN. That's great that's really good and so Nathan what kind of events do you put on? Yeah so we'll have on uh, multiple uh, lots of seminars so we'll have invite um either SWN alumni, so people who have been involved in different chapters or um, who are networked to Queens in some way, either alumni or they start a company here or they lived in Kingston, and we'll ask them to speak about their career path. And that's a very common event that we put on. We've tried to uh, branch out to have more workshops, so we'll have a panel of people to talk, and then the audience can ask multiple questions of, you know, how did you get... And usually it's a related field, so say science communication, for example, and we'll have a bunch of people involved in science communication or of science writing, I should say, and then they'll be able to talk to the audience and also offer different opinions. Um, and then also we're working on workshops as well to have uh, people develop the skills such as resume building and how to do an interview, um, and those will be future events that we'll be hoping to hold. Now, I know with my interaction with the Science to Business Network, I mean, you talked about alumni and things of the, of the network, and you've got some amazing people that you can reach out to to come and help with whether it's a workshop or a seminar or anything like that. Is there any shortage of getting people? Because I know we're in Kingston and a lot of the network may be in, say, Toronto or other um, cities and things like that, but all, all have really good things to offer. Yeah, so that's one of the nice things. One of the positives, I guess, of the pandemic is that we're able to host uh, events online. Um, and obviously the, the goal is to get back to on or to in-person events, but I think having that online element is really great because we can offer for speakers to come in from all over the country mm-hmm. and speak to students. And it's just a matter of organizing in terms of time differences. They don't have to travel here and speak to students like in person. So it's a, it's it's been been kind of a blessing in disguise in terms of yeah having people online. And and Queens has such a great network that I found that when people reach when we reach out to alumni of, of Queens, they're very open to saying yeah for sure. Or I know someone who would be more willing to do that. We've even had people going through Kingston on their way from Toronto to Montreal or vice right. versa. And they say, hey, can you stop in Kingston for, you know, a couple hours and, and do a talk? And they're more than willing to do that, which is, you know, is a testament to, like, their, their time at Queen's and also the, the camaraderie among Queen's alumni. Brilliant. Love to hear that. And I know you've you've put on some amazing events. So, Paolo, how can grad students and postdocs learn more about the club and upcoming events other than sending me a note saying, can you put it in the newsletter? <laughs> in the weekly newsletter. <laughs> oh, yeah, and thank you so much for advertising all of our events. We have a website, which is for the entire network, for all the chapters. So the website is s2bn.org, and there you can choose the Kingston chapter and see the okay. upcoming events. Right. And we also have a newsletter that people can sign up to, and we have a club email so people can also reach out to us by, by email. And, That's great. But I, w- I would say we also have Instagram account, Facebook, LinkedIn. So, yeah, we have many channels 
where people can just contact us. So as long us. as people remember the, the initials S2BN, they should be able to find you. Yes, absolutely. Which is <laughs> Two is the number two. Number two, yes, yeah, sorry. And that makes things very easy for everyone. So uh, thank you. And, you know, I, th- I think it was important for everyone to hear about opportunities like this at Queen's. And in particular, this one, like you said, it's more for the STEM and looking back what you can do after graduation in the STEM fields when you're not necessarily wanting to stay at the academic institution. So kudos to all of you for keeping it going, because I know it's been going for a long time now, and it's good to see it's still strong. And I'm sure the chapter would love other people to sort of step up and say, let me help, whatever I can do is help. So again, remember S2BN, and uh, you'll be able to get in contact there. So now, what I'd like to do with the rest of the time, if you don't mind, is, you know, talk a little bit about your research. So, Paolo, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay, put you on the hot seat, so to speak. Now, you said you were doing cancer research, and that's through the Biomedical and Molecular Sciences Programme. And, of course, this collaborative programme has people from different areas. It could be biomedical molecular science. It could be from pathology, molecular medicine, etc. But you're all working on similar sort of projects, and, of course, this one is in cancer. And we know we have a lot of different cancers, unfortunately. So your research topic is cancer cell plasticity and the tumour microenvironment. Lovely title. Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of what that is before I go into some of these questions? Absolutely. So cancer cells, and not just cancer cells, but a lot of cells in our body have the ability to adapt to their environment or to whatever is happening in our organism. And that ability to change how they behave or what genes they are transcribing, that's called plasticity. So they are moldable, if that makes sense. And cancer cells, they have a lot of plasticity, so they can respond to signals in where they are and be able to survive that because our body ultimately want to kill those cells Mm -hmm. and they find a way to evade that so and the tumor microenvironment is nothing more than the environment that the cancer cells are in so that involves other types of cells it involves the tissue the architecture uh, blood vessels immune cells and yeah so that's where the tumor grows right and the tumor microenvironment can impact the cancer cells and vice versa well, we don't want the cancer cells in the first place, and, and that's not through plasticity. That that's like being a, a bit of a mutant. Is that what the cancer cells are to start with? Yes. Well, cancer arises when a certain cell or a certain group of cells starts to proliferate very rapidly, and they can gain that advantage, that proliferation advantage, through a mutation. Right. Usually that's how it happens. And so there's a mutation in a gene, and then any, like... A proliferation pathway can go uncontrolled and that cell starts to proliferate and then the body cannot suppress that growth anymore. Right. And then that's how the tumor grows. Grows. Nasty little things, aren't they? <laughs> and there's way too, as I said, there's way too many of them. I mean, there's lots of things that you can be testing. So clearly you're looking at just the micro, the, the tumor microenvironment in your particular case. So with this microenvironment, are you looking at trying to change the environment so it has a better chance of us uh, treating the cancer? Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, it's one of the avenues we can go with with studying the microenvironment. So once the cancer community learned that the tumors and cancer is not just about the cancer cells, but it is supported by 
all these other cells and other structures around it. Well, we thought then if we break this communication between these two things, the cancer cells and the tumor marker environment, maybe the cancer will not grow anymore or we can make it weaker and then kill the cancer cells. And so that's one approach that cancer research took was trying to stop that communication between the tumor marker environment and the cancer cells. But not always it helps because the tumor marker environment is also working to control cancer growth. So it's a very complex relationship between the cancer cells and the cells in the tumor marker environment at the same time that the tumor marker environment is providing cancer cells with nutrients and signals to continue to growth. There are other cells like immune cells that are trying to stop that tumor right, from growing. Right. So you cannot just cut the communication, but you, you have to choose which what's the right wire to cut. Well, that makes it really tricky, doesn't it? Because, I mean, normally I would thought you attack the cancer cell, but clearly it's not just the cancer cell. It's everything around it. And like you said, what goes on around can either help or hinder yes. <laughs> what you're trying to do. So, I mean, you kind of alluded to this, of how hard it is to target the right part within the tumour microenvironment. What is your area? Because you talked about it could be the blood, it could be an electron, maybe electrical current or something. What part are you looking at? Because clearly there's a lot involved there and you can't necessarily look at all of them. Because, yes, you're right. There are a lot of things we can target in the tumour microenvironment. My project specifically and my interest is on the fibroblasts. That's a type of cell. It's a supporting cell in the tumor microenvironment, but there are several types of fibroblasts. And cancer cells can produce different growth factors that reprogram those fibroblasts into becoming cancer-promoting fibroblasts. But there's also fibroblasts that are actually trying to inhibit tumor growth. So it's not just the type of cell, but it's a subset Right. Of that type of cell. So there are good fibroblasts and bad fibroblasts. So you're trying to find the good ones. Yeah, we're trying to find the good ones and try to promote them. Right. Or try to find the bad ones and then... Try and squish those. To kill them, yes. (laughs) I'm very good on these technical terms, squish. (laughs) (laughs) Which can't be easy because you're looking at micro levels, right? I mean, micro environment, that's what we're talking about. So how do you actually do that without destroying other other good things that are around? That's another, well, that's, I think, the most difficult thing because, because they are all fibroblasts. They all kind of look the same. There are not specific markers to tell you, like, this is the bad one, this is the good one. Right. And that's one of the areas that a lot of people are working on is trying to identify which one is the good, which one's the bad. And also another level of complexity is that they might interchange. Oh, my God. (laughs) The good one can become the bad one and vice versa, depending on what environment they are. So depending on which signals they are receiving from cancer cells or from other cells in the tumor microenvironment. And yeah, so it gets really complicated. So it's a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde moment, not knowing which one's going to show itself. Yeah. Okay, so how far along have you got with that? I mean, I know it's, it's not an easy project and probably a lot of people have been working on it as well and you're trying to eliminate. Mm-hmm. I, that's the only way really this can happen is eliminate certain things through different tests. Yeah, my, my project is based on preliminary pilot study that was done in my lab before me. And we work with a protein called nodal, 
and this protein is secreted by cancer cells. Okay. And we know that, so it was shown in, shown in my lab that that protein promotes fibroblast activation, fibroblast proliferation. And so I'm trying to look at the effects of that protein in the fibroblast. And I'm trying to characterize, okay, we know that this protein is doing something to the fibroblasts. I'm trying to characterize what exactly is doing it to them. So if they are becoming good fibroblasts, bad fibroblasts, right. and how we can target that. And this particular protein, sorry, I've got lots of questions here. This particular protein, this nodal protein, where does that come from? Is it something we eat or is it just everywhere in our body automatically? No, actually, it's an embryonic protein. It, oh. it is supposed to be expressed in, during the embryonic development. Right. And in adult tissues, it's silenced. So we don't have that gene being expressed anymore, except for tissues that have a lot of turnover, like the endometrium. Right. Yeah, I think endometrium would be like, or even like the breast when it has to remodel when you're um, feeding and things. Breastfeeding, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. But it's very specific. And in certain types of cancer, that gene becomes expressed again. Right, so it gets activated again somehow. Yes, and because it's important for embryogenesis, it kind of gives cancer cells a feel of like stem cell-like characteristics. I can regenerate. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and so those cells become like more aggressive, and yeah. Seems like a good one to try and target. Oh, yeah, if, but it's if you can hard. find it, <laughs> it's very tricky. Yeah. <laughs> tricky indeed. So, what are you hoping if if you do find this nodal? That was what it's called, wasn't it? Nodal protein, and I guess then it's trying to stop it, yes. and then hope that if you stop that, then it will stop the next part in this microenvironment, or yes. the or the fibroblasts. Yes, if nodal is indeed like contributing to more aggressive type of tumors, ultimately we would like to cancel that communication. Like either target the production of nodal or uh, inhibit it from doing its role and causing that tumor mm-hmm. promotion, tumor aggression. But funny enough, I also work with thyroid cancer, and we've been seeing from our results that nodal in thyroid cancer has a good effect. Oh, no. Yeah. And okay, that'd be right. It's totally the opposite of right. what happens in melanoma, breast cancer, um, ovarian cancer. And, yeah, that's just very complex. And it does make sense because nodal is very context-dependent. So during embryogenesis, nodal has different roles mm-hmm. depending on each which stage of embryogenesis you're you're looking at right and so it depends like it's possible that in different environments so different organs the re-expression of nodal could have different effect well that's um a bit of a bummer <laughs> <laughs> fancy finding one that could be good but can be bad so i wish you every bit of luck on that and i know it's a lot more experimentation that's going to have to go on and like you said, if you can find it, making sure it only inhibits the bit that you want it inhibiting as opposed to the good ones as well. Yes, thank you. It'll be hard, but we do have some experiments lined up and designed to try to answer some of those questions. That's, that's great. <laughs> well, wish you every bit of luck on that because I'm sure everyone would like to know that if there's different ways we can stop cancer moving forward. So thank you. So Nathan, I'm going to go on to you now. You've been sitting very patiently and of course you're in biomedical engineering. 
which also has a bit of a, a medical sort of side to things. And of course, your research topic is the biometric scaffold for anterior cruciate ligament replacement. So again, can you give us a bit of an overview of what you are trying to do there? Yeah, for sure. So my research focuses on anterior cruciate ligament replacement. So it's the major ligament in your knee. So if you're, if any of the listeners are fans of basketball, soccer, the World Cup's going on right now. But there's a lot of ACL injuries, and you can. It's very indicative. The, the basically the leg looks not the way it's supposed to look, right. and it, it it looks off. Um, and that's usually a ligament uh, torn or ruptured. Sorry. So it's called the anterior, so it's in the front of your knee, and it's a cruciate because it makes a cross with uh, another ligament, and then obviously the ligament part because that's the tissue it is. So yeah, I'm hoping to have some sort, to create a synthetic scaffold that has been seeded with cells from the ligament itself, and then fully replace the the ACL that has been torn. So there is actually a surgery surgery that can be done right now, and it's it's usually allograft surgery, so they take actually your own tissue, so they take uh, Mm -hmm. your patellar tendon or quadriceps tendon, and they use that to replace the ruptured ACL. Unfortunately, it has a lot of downstream morbidities that can cause the the graft to fail early or it can cause re-injury or higher likelihood of re-injury. So we're hoping that our scaffold does a lot of things. It reduces the time of physiotherapy or physiotherapy or just recovery and also doesn't fail in the long term so that they get a longer time. And then we're hoping that this would be you know, this would be applicable to not only athletes, but also everyday people. Everyday people still injure the ACLs. I have a friend who just re-injured his, so I'm hoping to, uh, to, yeah, to have this research be broadly applicable to a lot of people. So the ACL in general is to help stability of the, the knee, correct? Yes, that's yeah. correct, yeah. And so, I mean, is it ruptured or is it just stretched too far that it can't support anymore? I mean, what is the strength of a, lig- the, of a ligament? Is it one that does stretch or is it it's a finite... So, yeah, so the ligament actually is a really cool feature. So you can think of it, if you look at it under a microscope, it has these wavy patterns. And as we're sitting down, as we're walking, running, jumping, um, going upstairs, these wavy patterns start to unfurl. So they become almost like a spring where you stretch a spring. So that means the tissue itself is not actually stretching. It's just these waves that are being loaded and then unloaded. So this ligament on a regular basis, it doesn't stretch. It can can, um, withhold actually some tissue stretching. But when I'm talking about ACL injury or rupture, the full thing breaks. So it almost looks like when you break a rope, that's right. what happens. All these fibers just explode and they look like little fibery ends. Which is not very nice. Yeah, it's, yeah, I haven't seen it. Well, I've seen pictures of it, but I haven't seen it in real life. But yeah. So it's clearly a structure in our body that's not very good at fixing itself. Correct, It yes. needs intervention all the time when we do that. And as you said before, when you've used your tissues from the person who's been injured, their own tissue, it doesn't always succeed Mm -hmm. because it can happen again. So with the scaffolding that you're looking, because you're in chemical engineering as well as biomedical engineering, when you're looking at the scaffolding, how can you recreate, you talked about this crimping effect that's in the normal ligament. How do you look at, how do you do that? How do you recreate it? Yeah, so there's study then by my uh, professor who's completed by a previous graduate student that found that when you electrospin, which is essentially a fabrication technique where you can eject this very fine fiber out of this needle and you make it even finer by having an electric field between the tip of the extrusion pipe and then the and there's a collector as well. And if you cr- generate an electric field between them, it narrows that polymer solution jet and it makes very, very fine fi- fibers. Essentially it makes 
micron size fibers. And the way we collect it is using this rotary collector. So it's almost like a spinning drum and we collect the fibers on that. And because we collect them using that, there's actually inherent tension in the fibers themselves. And we can actually release that tension by just heating it up right. and that tension will be released. And it's been found by previous graduate students that you can actually generate a very similar crimping um, wavelength and uh, magnitude to the native ACL, which is, which is pretty cool. So you're wanting to attach this scaffold, which is man-made, yep. out of polymers, plastics? Polymers, yeah, plastics, yep. yeah. Same so thing. I've learned a lot about polymers. Yeah, that's okay, yeah. <laughs> Yay, I've only been doing this for five, six years. How then does the body not reject it? Because we know sometimes when you bring in something foreign, yeah. how to, first of all, does our, what's good of the left of the normal ligament will attach to it and stay and not get chucked out? Like, so, say, no, we don't like you. Yeah, so we're actually, the surgery actually removes the full ligament so there's no ligament left no, so the person is left with okay. no ligament and they have to fully replace that so that's why the replacements in the title is it's a full replacement not like sorry about that that's okay no that's okay so yeah we're using polymers that minimize any sort of inflammatory response in the body mm-hmm. also the fact that the acl doesn't repair itself has a kind of twofold effect so it doesn't repair itself because there's no blood vessels and it's, it is innervated, so you can kind of feel it. But there's no blood vessels. That's why it doesn't repair itself. So that also right. helps us when we put it in a scaffold. There's very low chance of inflammatory response because there's nothing to right. respond to right. um, in that area. So it's kind of the, the factor of the, the material you choose and also the environment that you put it in. Yeah, we, we're hoping. And then we're hoping to use the, the patient's own, when this goes into a human <laughs> trials, we're hoping to use the patient's own uh, ligament cells because when they repa- when they remove that ACL, they actually just throw away those cells. So we're hoping to use those to then put onto the our synthetic so then, scaffold and then to attach that to the knee and the other places that it normally attaches. Yeah. To. So there's already surgery that you kind of put these like bony plugs in, and then they, it's kind of gruesome, but. Um, if, anyone wants to look it up it's kind of interesting <laughs> in the orthopedic surgery it's basically like a carpenter shop they have drills right. yeah. and so they no, just drill through your bone and then they will replace that that's replacement scaffold with these with the replacement scaffold whatever it is the, the allograft or our scaffold and then they have these bony plugs that were secured into the bone how far away are you i mean these things take a while because you sounded like you hadn't been able to test it yet on a human <laughs> no no human trials are fairly long way away. Mm-hmm. I'm finishing up hopefully in about a year or so. So hopefully my project will answer some questions and, and hopefully get us closer to at least animal trials. And we're hoping to, I'm hoping to do some work with cells and some stem cells as well. Yeah, but um, it's still far away away from any, I'm sure all those know. athletes are saying, come on, let's yes. get this for sorted. Yes. Because yes. as we know, you're right, they do have a lot of injuries. I'm interested to see how much happens over the, the World Cup. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure things. I'm almost guaranteed there'll be some sort of ACL injury mm. for sure. It's actually been quite interesting having you both on because you're both in the sort of the medical field. One is trying to stop something, one you're trying to put back in and to replace. Although I guess you're both trying to replace get rid of the bad cells, get rid of the this dysfunctional ligament that hasn't worked, and then putting something new in. So um, it's been fascinating to talk to both of you. So I really appreciate you both coming on the show today. Well, thank you so thanks. much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Colette. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. And and don't forget, everyone, about the Science to Business Network. I mean, that's why we came on in the first place, and we, we got the bonus by talking about some research too. 
don't forget the Science to Business Network. Uh, if you are here at Queen's or at or if you listen to this on, on podcast and you're at another university, just go and see if they've also got a, a chapter of the Science to Business Network because it truly does um, some great work there for us. So there we go. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Ooh, I can't believe it. Time has gone again. So thank you very much for coming uh, on the show and, and everyone for listening. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.